Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. And uh, we have done like over a thousand programs since the pandemic began. Um, so we have uh, shifted from our, our live audience uh, to having much larger uh, online audiences in addition to our live audience. But it's always great to have a live audience here uh, to enjoy the speakers directly and, and to interact directly with them. If you are in uh, the uh, YouTube audience later on, you'll be able to hear what, what questions were asked um, at the time because we'll have a Q&A near the end. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're here to discuss uh, another topic, uh, which we do a lot of at the Commonwealth Club, about our climate. And in this case, we have with us Bruce Kane, a professor of political science at Stanford. Um, he's also the director of the Bill Lane Center for the American West. And he is the author of the book, um, under fire and underwater, uh, and it's in the American West. So it's a very interesting idea about what our climate problems are and the politics of it. As, as, he, as he mentioned to me, he's a, he's a political scientist, and uh, it gives you a completely different angle on some of the problems that we're dealing with. So first of all, thank you very much for joining us tonight, uh, Bruce. And, and uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, um, so in your book, you talk about the background of the American West. And since you're, you're, this is part of what you do, it was very fascinating to me to show what the government, how the government treated it. It's like an uninhabitable piece of land. Can we make it inhabitable? Yeah. And now that it was made inhabitable, now what are we going to do? And a, a totally different thing has happened. So why don't you give a little background on, on that? Because I thought it, it really set a nice context for it. Yeah. Well, I should mention that um, we teach a course on the American West, and indeed... Uh, one of the other teachers of this course is out there, David Freiberg. Mm -hmm. um, and in this course, we really focus on the development of the American West, and particularly in the 19th century, although we do go back and look at uh, earlier periods of the evolution of the geography of the West, mm -hmm. which is obviously greater. But essentially, as compared to the East Coast, the West Coast is a creation of the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, a lot of the laws, the institutions, the uh, rights that we uh, give for water use, et cetera, um, had the, um, if you like, the, the sort of flavor of what we were trying to do in the 19th century, which was to inhabit the West, mm -hmm. uh, partly for security reasons, partly just uh, expansion and grabbing the resources. Uh, and as a consequence, when you look at um, the build-out of the infrastructure of the West, you see that um, that much of it was initially uh, going to be done by private sector, so uh, mm. private water companies, private roads, etc. But the failure to do that led um, many of the um, the sort of entrepreneurs of the West to look to the federal government to build the railroads. Of course, mm. that's a big topic uh, to build the canals, the, the irrigation systems. And so if you hadn't done that, there are parts of the West that would, uh, particularly in, in California, that would have been largely in, inhabitable for, an, not inhabitable for a large number of um, people. So it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have an L.A. in mm -hmm. L.A. Basin. You wouldn't be able to uh, be uh, in, in Riverside, the Inland Empire, uh, because you didn't have the water resources to support that kind of 
population. And so you had to manufacture the conditions. And so it tells you that one element of a sustainability policy is the infrastructure that makes it possible for people to live in that area. And so in the end, uh, you, you know, what we created was based on assumptions about uh, the West. Some of them were initially wrong, that we didn't have areas uh, that were, that everything was arid, and we discovered, no, that's not true. There are actually areas up in the mountains and in the Northwest that uh, have quite a bit of water. And so the task was to sort of redistribute it, which became an engineering task. But in order to make that happen, you had to have uh, government policies that uh, made that possible. So I think uh, what made us habitable uh, initially, unfortunately, may not be the infrastructure we need going forward. We may, mm -hmm. for example, uh, not be able to build the reservoirs that made it possible for us to store water because we now mm -hmm. are more concerned about the environmental damage that they do uh, mm -hmm. with the dams. Okay. And so that means we have to think of a whole new kind of infrastructure. Probably a lot of it will be groundwater storage. Mm -hmm. But then we have to think about, well, how do we get you know, the water from where the new places are to where it's going to be used and to what extent should it overlap with agriculture and to what extent should we be using this water purified at a level the way some countries do to, so that we could actually drink it and make mm -hmm. it potable. So I think to make it habitable in the 19th century, we had to use 19th century institutions. We had assumptions that the purpose of the land was largely agricultural and instrumental. And now you, in the 20th century, again, we're confronted with the question of, well, what should our infrastructure look like to make the place habitable? And we're not going to be able to use as much of the dams and reservoirs, perhaps, because of environmental objections. So now we have to figure out a way to do that storage. And we have to figure out uh, a new form of transportation because we no longer think of L.A. and all the cars that made L.A. possible. We're going to have to rethink that. Mm -hmm. So I think... You know, it's not as if that construction isn't going on in a different way in different parts of the country, but the particular framework of the West, the particular conditions of the West in terms of aridity, in terms of, uh, you know, the topography uh, with the mountains, et cetera, uh, you know, the, the possibility of, uh, of sea level rise around the bay, all these things are, they, you can find them in other places, but I would say that there's, we, we argue in the class that there's something distinctive about many of at least uh, many of the problems in both frequency and in type. So the increasing complexity, one of the ideas in your book, the increasing complexity since the 19th century in the bureaucracy and everything yeah. has, has led to uh, bureaucratic blockages of, of getting things done. And so where the federal government made big decisions or people induced the federal government to make big mm -hmm. decisions and then, you know, big projects were done. That's not happening anymore, or I mean, there's there's the high speed rail project, which yeah, yeah. would be a very bad example of getting things done. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we'll get uh, get some questions on that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, part of it is the complexity of government. So the numbers of, particularly the expansion of government at the local level. You know, think of California, the number of special districts we created, the continuing increase in the number of cities. Um, so, yes, part of it is just the sheer complexity of these local units, uh, combined with the fact that the U.S. government system gives, as compared to other countries, gives local governments a lot more sovereignty over uh, decisions. Mm -hmm. And so 
if the federal government wants to decarbonize, they have to take into account the fact that local governments have a lot of control over, uh, you know, uh, some of the things that have to happen, like the charging stations or water storage, et cetera, land use, et cetera. So, um, yeah, I think it's that that is an element of complexity. But one thing to realize is that we hit increasing complexity in the late 19th century. That's when the government really started to expand, and that followed the sort of industrialization period. Uh, so we have been complex, you know, starting in the early 20th century and all, you know, with the progressive movement. We have been a, a complex society. How do we get things done after World War II? How do we build the highway system? How do, and the answer is that it helped to be at war with somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, and You're not uh, suggesting that, though. Well, I don't have to. We seem to, <laughs> we seem to find our way into, uh, in, into wars. Uh, but it, there's no question that uh, World War II was a major boost to the highway system, for example, mm -hmm. uh, or, or for that matter, the construction of uh, the dams on the, uh, up in the Columbia River area to provide power for the nuclear facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I think that the, the we're, we don't it, it, the problem with climate change is that it's taken extreme weather to make real what was an abstract conception about what would happen with global warming. I mean, people mm -hmm. could either accept the science uh, and feel complacent about it or reject the science because they don't know anything about chemistry or, or science. Mm -hmm. But when you the frequency of events the duration of the events, the severity of the events uh, hits them personally mm. when the fires or the smoke come down all the way. Mm. The smoke comes down to San Francisco. The fires are in Napa and Sonoma. Um, when uh, the drought is lasting longer and you have to make more cuts, then the reality of climate change is experienced by people. And that's when you, the mechanism we're looking for is that that then leads to a willingness to make changes um, that will allow us to be more adapted, uh, both in terms of moving away from a carbonized economy and also adapting to the extreme weather. So we need these pushes, unfortunately, mm -hmm. because there's so much inertia in the system. We have to be kicked, <laughs> yeah. kicked in the shin to do something about it. And uh, are, you, are you saying that, that the story that was, uh, you know, uh, made the Nicholson movie Chinatown so entertaining was the kind of push we need now? I mean, some kind of deal behind the scenes to make, bring water to L.A.? Cause yeah, yeah. Is that, is, that, is that historically somewhat accurate, or is it? Well, I, I, uh, I, I can't, I don't remember Chinatown well enough oh, okay. because that was about 30 <laughs> years ago. Uh, but uh, So I'm not going to comment on how accurate it is, but I will say that it, it, it is certainly true that deals were more possible in the politics of the earlier period than today mm -hmm. because of our belief in transparency and open meeting laws mm -hmm. and FOIA laws mm -hmm. uh, and the proliferation of interest groups that are well organized and have resources and have highly educated people working for them. It's much harder now to do the kind of backroom uh, smoke filled room mm -hmm. deals that we did in an earlier period. That's not again, it's not a negative. Yeah. Well, it's an, it, it, well, it's hard to say. It's a, a mixed <laughs> negative. On the one hand, you yeah. uh, you know you, you can. I wrote a book about this yeah. democracy, more or less. I mean, on the <laughs> one hand, you 
you can say that uh, we, we certainly had to do that in order to keep government accountable, and there was certainly a lot more corruption. On the other hand, we have to accept the fact that because of this, we've created all these uh, points that can delay mm -hmm. and obstruct. And that's why the Biden administration and uh, California has tried to expedite the permitting process, tried to push the process along, tried to figure out ways to get these local jurisdictions to uh, cooperate. So, you know, it is more complex. Mm -hmm. It isn't that we don't have solutions, but we need to be kicked in the shin over and over again to overcome the inertia or the comfort of working with what we're familiar with, which is the existing rules, in order to adopt uh, rules that expedite the process. You talk about, I mean, since we're still talking about water, and the Colorado River has obviously mm -hmm. been talked about not having enough for decades now. Um, and there have been some water desalination plants in San Diego, I think you mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but do you see that, I, I know it's expensive, but do you see desalination as a long-term adaptation uh, to the climate? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, to be honest, I think it's going to be all of the above. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in theory, you could do more recycling and storage of water in the aquifers. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is that Farmers aren't jumping at the idea of uh, taking their land and, and um, making it used to store carbon or star, store water. And this is a, something that there have been some conferences at Stanford on is we're beginning to realize the land use aspects of this is very important. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, desal is controversial in the state of California, but we have uh, put in a few uh, plants up and down uh, the coast um, it, it, there is damage to the biota. There's mm -hmm. a lot of concern about uh, the, um, although there are ways to deal with the dispersion of the salted water uh, afterwards, the brine. But it, there still is economic, environmental resistance to the environmental damage that is perceived to come with that. So I don't know that we're going to have them in every county or mm -hmm. every spot uh, that doesn't seem too likely, but uh, I, I don't think, particularly the Central Coast, mm -hmm. can get by without it. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not tied to the state water system, uh, and so they really need to find other sources of water. Uh, and some of the, in, the flows on the Carmel River and other places have been restricted. So I, I think if we're going to see it, it's going to be in these areas where they're not tied to uh, the the state water project or you know the, the water that comes down from the north in Southern California, uh, particularly in San Diego and parts of LA, you know the use of the Colorado water mm -hmm. is worrying down the future because in the future because you've got a lot of growth mm -hmm. uh, in the upper reaches of the Colorado River in in states uh, like Colorado and mm -hmm. uh, Arizona et cetera and. In fact, we're going to probably do something. We're going to go to Arizona with our Rural West Conference and talk about some of the agreements that we're trying to reach on renegotiating how much water comes to California. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's obviously got a trouble past, and it's not going to get easier if um, the, uh, the extent, extended droughts cause the water supply to, uh, to drop at critical levels in the dams up and down the Colorado, which almost happened to us last year so 
do you do you think that there's I mean what's the incentive to the people who hold these rights from the 19th century to start to give them up or start to negotiate them uh, away very, besides uh, money which would be very expensive I would think yeah no they don't want to give up the rights for the most part I mean you can see when you drive up the 99 and the 5 the people that have junior water rights and, mm. and that tried to plant trees, <laughs> mm. almond trees and fruit trees, you can see that they've had to take them out because mm -hmm. they, they couldn't get the water mm -hmm. uh, in the most recent droughts to, to keep those trees alive. So um, I, I, I don't see volunteers to give up water rights. Mm -hmm. I think where the problem could be for the people that hold these rights is the initiative process. Mm -hmm. that now it could all end up in court and there'd be takings disputes. But the bottom line is that these are rights that were created at the state level. Not every state has appropriative rights. So if things got bad enough uh, and some billionaire high-tech person from San Francisco wants to, uh, you could imagine in the future uh, an initiative measure that really alters the rights or gets rid of the rights. Hmm. We're not there right now. Um, we're not there because we still we still have some flexibility in terms of uh, you know our allocating the water within the system that we have, and we manage to get through these droughts. But if they really become longer and and um, you know we, the, the the crisis of water storage becomes more problematic then i think it's entirely possible that you could have something at the state level that changes the system and gets rid of it mm. but again it's the kick in the shin the kick in right. the shin nothing happens in a democracy until you're kicked in the shin mm. and I, as i mentioned to you earlier mm. uh you know this is where china envy comes in people look at the autocratic process mm -hmm. uh, in other countries and realize that it's a lot easier to do things but of course it's a lot easier to abuse power right so right, that's right. your trade-off there's a downside yeah yeah <laughs> let's, let's hope we remember that when we're when we're desperate yes um so it, gavin newsom a couple of years ago i think uh started talking about another big redoing of the water system um has that come along um is that is well i think he was uh, wasn't on the delta uh, yeah yeah um yeah i think we made progress um i'm not an expert on the delta negotiation so i'm not gonna weigh in on it but um you know i i, I it's agriculture is in a difficult position because while a lot of land is taken up with agriculture in the central valley and uh, and uh Salinas Valley and down in Southern California, the reality is it's only about 2% of GDP mm -hmm. in a state where there's enormous wealth in the urban and suburban areas. So as a political scientist, I personally think that agriculture has to be very careful mm -hmm. <laughs> because I, I, you know, there are other uses that, that, um, that the people that have that land may be able to make money off of. It will depend upon the geology of those areas, but it's quite possible that some of these areas are, well, they're already, some of the rangeland areas are used for, you know, wind and solar, particularly solar, but wind in some places. Uh, and uh, the carbon storage 
is coming back. We're realizing that we may not be able to do everything with renewable and batteries. The battery development isn't fast enough. And so it's entirely possible that we're going to have to do carbon storage. Well, where are we going to put it? Mm -hmm. Are we going to put it in Marin? Are we going to put it in San Francisco? Uh, that is not usually the pattern of where we store our waste. <laughs> <laughs> we give it to the eastern side of the state and hope that we give them enough money so they don't mind. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, And so, you know, that's problematic, mm -hmm. especially, say, with the uh, the utility scale solar, because then we have to put uh, transmission lines across the wooey areas, the woodland areas, and then they fall down and they start fires. So I'm not sure how long this side of the state can continue to put utility scale solar, battery systems, mm. DAC, which is direct air capture, which is, you know, large machines that are whirring and you know, sucking in the air, according mm -hmm. to some people, that's what they want to do. Carbon capture, where we're going to store it. I mean, mm -hmm. all of this is eventually going to create huge land use problems on the eastern side of the state. Not to mention, there are some counties that are already are putting a limit on how much utility scale solar they're willing to take. San Bernardino and mm -hmm. uh, some of the inland county, inland First of all, they're a red state. They don't believe any of this stuff is really important. Mm -hmm. And secondly, you know, they, they're no more happy about the light flicker that comes from uh, turbines mm -hmm. than uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and to be honest, if you were to try to put those uh, facilities in Marin or Sonoma or Palo Alto, um, they wouldn't be very happy about it either. If you yeah. said, okay, well, we're going to take the carbon uh, you know, and we're going to bury it in the Bay Area mm -hmm. near where the homes and schools are. Mm -hmm. And people would ask a lot of questions about, well, is that safe? Is the geology safe enough for that? Fortunately, I don't think we have a lot of areas that are eligible, but it, there's, what I'm getting at is that there's a kind of environmental justice thing that's mm -hmm. arising because many of those areas in the eastern part of the state are poor. And yeah. so they, yeah, they will do it for a price, but it does have environmental consequences. Yeah, you talk in your book about, about the, the uh, discrepancy between poor communities and richer communities in dealing with things, especially because communities can make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think you had, you had an, uh, one, of the, one of the communities, Foster City, I think. Yeah, Foster City, yeah. yeah. Maybe you can explain about, because that's a good example of, of what yeah. you're talking about. Okay, so you know, when you're talking about sea level rise, uh, the problem is that uh, the water has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we've seen this up and down the coast with Pacifica and other places that the dispute over seawalls, that if you put the seawalls up, you can see that the water gets deflected and causes erosion further down the coast or a different place in the coast. Mm -hmm. and, and when you get into the bay, um, there are models, uh, Berkeley's done a lot of them, on what happens if one part of the bay puts up levees mm -hmm. uh, and what happens to the water if you do that and... Uh, and the answer is some other area in the bay is going to be affected. So Foster City, the story of Foster City is that, of course, it was an island at one time, and then they filled it in to make Foster City. And it, it increasingly was flooding, and they were faced with having the federal insurance uh, program uh, was either going to up their rates completely or get out of the business completely. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they were told that, Either they're facing huge rates, uh, rate increases, or they had to build a levy. And so they, they went ahead and they had a referendum or initiative, a uh, local initiative, and they got the money to, uh, to do the levies, and they went ahead. Um, this was 
there were other communities that said, well, wait a minute, well, let, why don't we have an integrated plan? And Foster City said, oh, we can't wait for an integrated plan. Thank mm. you very much. Otherwise, we're going to get hit with huge mm. uh, insurance increases. So they went ahead and put their levy in. Mm. And now you can imagine around the Bay that Foster City is a relatively affluent community. You can imagine, imagine that this will happen mm. uh, in other parts of the Bay that are affluent enough uh, to get it together, but that there might be other areas like Richmond or, you know, uh, East Palo Alto, et cetera, where, where they won't have the resources to do that. And then they will get the consequences of that construction. Um, so I, you know, the problem of a lot of what we're doing in California looks great, but it's because of what I call first movers, i.e. communities that have resources and uh, the will to either adapt or to mitigate. Mm -hmm. So they either have in, you know, gone renewable in their energy portfolio or they're building levees or mm -hmm. protections. But there are other communities that don't have the resources to do that on their own and moreover don't have the expertise and uh, the technical expertise and the resources to even apply for the grants. Often you have to have a matching grant. The mm -hmm. state does matching grants because they want to make sure you're, you know, the co there's cost sharing. Um, they're going to, uh, the state, the DWR and other agencies are always going to favor the, the proposals that are done more technically, mm -hmm. uh, ably. Right. And so uh, if you don't compete on that, you're not going to get the money. And so what you see is there are a lot of communities around here that have the resources to take to protect themselves and probably will in the future, but there are others that aren't. And then the question is, well, what what are the environmental justice consequences of letting some people soar ahead and other people fall behind? And it's going to occur in adaptation. Uh, that's the foster city. It's going to occur in uh, and already is occurring in the energy uh, front where some cities are uh, essentially signed contracts that are heavily renewable and others are stuck with paying for the system that uh, the utility still has, which is far less renewable. Mm -hmm. So these kinds of inequities, or you look at solar panels. Solar panels are not heavily on rental uh, you know, apartments and, and rental facilities mm -hmm. uh, in poor areas, they're largely on, um, uh, you know, people are putting them on middle-class homes. Or if you look at electric cars, I mean, I don't, you don't see Teslas mm -hmm. in town, in, in the poor areas of Los Angeles. Uh, mm -hmm. Teslas are in Beverly Hills or Pasadena, et cetera. So how many times do we keep doing that mm -hmm. and ignore the fact that we, we're kind of creating two worlds, mm -hmm. even within this very blue California. And even, even I mean, from an environmental point of view, it's, it's all one, almost all one. Well, certainly on the emission split. side, yeah. yeah, yeah. On, on, the, on protecting the weather, not so much. But I do think when you're talking about uh, the decarbonization, which is mm -hmm. a global problem, then, yeah, if uh, some people, in fact, uh, the, the some of these communities that brag about being 100% uh, renewable, we've been doing some work and we're realizing that what's happened is that as they became more renewable, PG&E's load became closer to what the minimum standard is, which is called renewable portfolio, portfolio standards. So the irony is that there are communities in Marin and Sonoma and uh, Santa Clara 
that have very, very renewable portfolios and can proudly say that they're greener than anybody else. Mm. But the real question is, what's the total amount of greenness? And if you're just redistributing it so some people are seeming greener and mm. other people are not, you're not really making the progress that you think you're making. Right, right. You're telling us that we're not always honest and transparent about what we're up to? Have we ever been? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it, you know, I don't think this is nefarious. It's, right. it's, you know, some people earnestly are trying to do well and they get frustrated by the fact that others either don't have the resources or the will to do it. And so what are we going to hold them back? Mm -hmm. And by the way, you do learn something by letting people try out, uh, you know, the heat pumps and, uh, and the home battery systems and technology that's not yet ripe. And so you have to have first movers. Right. You have to have people that are willing to spend the money to try the technology, and then you can scale it up and bring down the cost. So I don't want to diminish the role of that, mm -hmm. but I think there has to be planning uh, about how you scale that says, okay, well, the easy part of it is with the people, the resources. The harder part of it is you're not going to get to your renewal, your, your goals, your, your mm -hmm. clean energy goals by 2045 if you don't scale down the socioeconomic ladder. Mm -hmm. And this is a problem that I see in American universities is the kids in particular have been trained in K through 12 and elsewhere about the facts of climate change, but not about the politics of it. Mm -hmm. And so they see it as a moral issue. It's black or white. There's no trade-offs. There's no difficulty. Um, and, you know, the reality is that it's, it's going to be hard to do, to scale down, to figure out ways to provide, um, you know, uh, the protection that these communities need, you know, and to not pile it on the people out in the eastern side of the state, mm -hmm. make sure that uh, electric cars are cheap enough and, and that they can find the charging stations mm -hmm. uh, because they're not going to be able to charge uh, in their garage because they don't have garages. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that we're going to have to work out. And to just think that we can snap our fingers and all of this is going to happen is not the way change is made in America. No. Um, you make a lot of good points in your book on that. I'll leave some of those details for the readers. But uh, you, you have two examples of where it worked and where it has been helpful but not really worked yet. One was closing the ozone hole, and the other one was uh, acid rain. Mm -hmm. So why don't you explain how we actually succeeded at one in and and Maybe it has some costs anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's important, I think. Yeah, actually, I went to one of the first lectures on the ozone hole when I was at Caltech. It was an Irvine professor that came up and gave one of his first seminars about that. Um, well, you know, at the time we were, you know, we were concerned that, uh, you know, that there would be immediate physical effects. That if there was this hole, that the cancer rates would go up. And so I remember that period where people could connect the weather problem, well, not the weather problem, but the climate problem with the possibility of physical harm. Mm -hmm. So that was one element that I think made it possible for us to uh, close the ozone hole by changing. Unfortunately, the way we changed it made some other problems worse. But anyway... Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is that there was a, a capacity to, uh, for this relatively small set of industries to sort of shift uh, away from the CFCs. And so I, I, I think it was a simpler problem 
that had more, whether it was true or not, it, the time we believed that it had real physical impacts. Mm -hmm. And the industry was able to substitute uh, a new solution and still continue to develop the products. So then you go to acid rain, mm -hmm. and now you have a broader problem uh, because the emissions from the uh, NOx and SOx and other things were uh, literally causing uh, damage to trees and to buildings and to s statues and all kinds mm -hmm. of things. I remember the pictures. Um, and it was drifting, um, you know, drifting all, all through the Northeast and up into Canada. And so people knew that there was a problem. Again, it was visible, but it was a much more extensive industry because mm -hmm. uh, we had a lot of coal plants in those days. Right. And so uh, the economic consequences were greater. There was visibility of the problem, um, so, uh, but it took a while for the effects of that to actually you know, devastate the forests in certain areas or cause the destruction of uh, property. So it took a little while. Uh, and so the negotiations over that also occurred uh, was at the beginning of the polarization period, which I would say is starting with Reagan. Uh, in the 80s, that's when we started to get the transformation of American politics. So the early period, we were still at the tail end of sort of the post-war harmony bipartisan period. Mm -hmm. And with Reagan, we started to get the breakdown of sort of the, the liberal hegemony of the, of, you know, uh, the Great Society era and the Kennedy era. Um, and we started to get more divisive, divisive politics. So the divisive politics and... Um, the, the more complex nature of the industry delayed the solution of that. Mm -hmm. Now we get to climate change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and first of all, the connection to weather was not quite as immediate as it is now, but at least mm -hmm. it took a while for the accumulation of the, um, you know, the greenhouse gases to really change the weather as dramatically as it has. I mean, it was happening, obviously, but it's mm -hmm. still... It just seems like in the last 10 years, uh, there's a greater awareness of the effect on storms and the effect on sea level rise. Uh, so it took a while for people to make the physical connection. It's still not, um, ex except with the wildfire problem where, at least in the West, for the most part, you're not waking up in the morning wondering whether you're going to die from mm -hmm. climate change, okay? Yeah. Um, if you're living... In Florida, maybe you worry a little bit more at certain times of the year. Uh, but in fact, um, the number of people that really have to worry about evacuating their homes as a fraction of the total electorate in California is relatively small. So as a political analyst, I think, okay, unfortunately, that's hard to really build into a lot of momentum because the number of people that actually evacuate uh, in the wooey areas is relatively small. Now, the PSPS shutoffs, when we turn off the power, right. that starts to get people irritated, okay? Yeah. So that, and then the smoke, uh, it's, I, I feel like we're in the same place with wildfire smoke that we were with tobacco smoke when you and I were younger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I remember when I first heard about the tobacco smoke and the secondhand smoke, I said, I don't smoke, how can I possibly? Mm -hmm. And then I started reading the study and I go, oh God, um, mm -hmm. because I was often in rooms that... Um, you know, that had tobacco smoke, and I'm sure you did too. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. So, uh, it, so we know from some of the work that's been done in the last uh, five to 
five or six years in particular that wildfire smoke is, and the PM 2.5 is extremely problematic, particularly if you're breeding it for weeks on end, which happens in many areas of the, uh, the Central Valley, like Fresno. Mm -hmm. uh, it lingers. The smoke not only from California fires, but fires from the northwest mm -hmm. uh, can drift down. And so that has the political advantage that lots of people should be worried about it, but it has, unfortunately, uh, the perception of lethality or of danger is, is relatively low. So we're kind of, um, it's just a much more complex way. When, so the politics is more complex, right? Because mm -hmm. we have more polarization. We now have social media, so we don't, a lot of people can't figure out truth Mm -hmm. from they don't trust the reliable sources that we had in the past mm -hmm. uh, so they're they're not believing science as much as they used to so you've got that problem uh, and then you have the fact that it doesn't quite tie to personal danger as frequently as um, as need as you need to to sort of mobilize people and so I, I, I argue that the complexity of the politics and the um, you know, the complexity of the connection in people's minds between what's going on up in the mm -hmm. atmosphere and, and the extreme weather, all that leaves a lot of room for sowing doubt if you are so inclined, which we know um, some people on the right are so inclined to do. And so it makes it very hard for us to get on the same page. I mean, if we get another change in government, if we get a Republican Congress and a Republican president, it's pretty clear that a lot of the um, programs that we had and the spending that we're trying to do um, could be reversed and, mm -hmm. and terminated. And what we need to do if we're going to make any progress of this is to do continuous progress, but we have a political system that guarantees you're not going to get that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so once again, China envy. China envy. Yeah. Um, your uh, comment about the smoking, you know, I found interesting because that was something that happened very fast. Once, mm -hmm. once it got in, um, New York City said, you know, I think it was late 80s, that you, you can sort of, uh, there were about six months where you could ask people to not smoke. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of that six months, there was a rule, you couldn't smoke. And the smokers were, were uh, aghast at this. They couldn't believe that this had happened so fast. Yeah. But but it did happen, and you were. It, it reminded me of you saying, "Personal danger and kick in the shin," you know, and and people. Yeah, but that kick in the shin. Right. Um, you know, we saw this with COVID, right? That right. people did not want a mask. Um, and then we have the environmental justice issue that uh, buying these air filters for your home mm -hmm. uh, is it not an expenditure that everybody can make. Mm -hmm and that the insulation on the homes uh, varies enormously. Mm -hmm. And so once again, you know, there are a lot of factors uh, that go into the fact that not everybody can adapt or wants to adapt or mm -hmm. feels like they have to. So um, the smoking, uh, at the same time we were doing all this, of course, um, you you'd go over to Paris and you go to a restaurant and yeah. you realize, that, oh no. <laughs> there were a lot of resistance there. So yeah. it wasn't an easy, it wasn't an easy, um, transformation. No, and I, I just was uh, over in Europe for a, a, a trip, and I noticed that smoking had gone down a lot, and that's the first time that I noticed that, even in Germany. 
Oh, really? In, in Paris, it's like it took about 30 years longer or something like that, but suddenly now it's a lot lower. Anyway, um, to, to, uh, you, you mentioned something in your book which I thought was very interesting. In, in dealing with climate change in general, there's sort of two, two ways. One is, is uh, to create more resilience, and the other is to, to adapt, to try to change it, to try to solve the problem that's causing it. But then there's also the adaptation to things getting worse, and we need both. And yeah, that was an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it's it means that we have to divide the dollar. Yeah, we have to spend money both on adaptation and on mitigation. Um, so at the same time that we're trying to decarbonize our grid and um, you know put in new infrastructure for that, uh, at the same time we have to worry about the adaptation problems. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're paying wildfire liability costs. Mm -hmm. And if you look at your bill, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's going up because we have to A, bury lines. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're gonna put them in wooey areas, we have to, at least in the areas where the wind is going to really whip through, we gotta bury the lines. And so PG&E is burying the lines strategically mm -hmm. in different places. Um, and, you know, we, at the same time, you know, we're still continuing. We're, we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be for 2045 if we're trying to, uh, you know, mit mitigate. And so we, we have to continue to make progress on storage. Or we don't have the battery storage now is woefully inadequate given the amount of energy and power that we have to generate. And so we have to do two things now. I think we, when I first got to Stanford, I had the sense that uh, we were more oriented uh, towards the fact that we we needed to work hard on mitigation, and there were some people that were arguing that we shouldn't worry about adaptation. But again, we got kicked in the shin mm -hmm. in different ways, and now people realize that we got to do both, mm -hmm. and that just makes another complication in in trying to deal with the climate crisis. One of the things you mentioned is is that you know uh, high fire danger areas probably shouldn't be rebuilt. <laughs> I know that sounds re radical, but why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about that as a as a as a yeah? So we, um, I mean, the reality is that if you took the fires that happened in Santa Rosa, mm -hmm. I think it was two seventeen or so, and um, the area that burned and went across the one hundred one into the Coffee Park area it was Fountain Valley, which was this area. The fire started in Napa, blew across in the middle of the night, burned out a community called Fountain Valley, which had a lot of Stanford grads in it. So when we did a meeting up there about it, um, many of the Stanford people had been burned out. And then it hopped over the freeway and went to Coffee Park. And that's uh, an area that never thought they were in, in danger, but the winds were so strong that the sparks, you know, mm -hmm. came across. Uh, so it turns out, A, that the path of that fire coincided with at least four or five fires in the last hundred years, mm -hmm. okay? B, that Santa Rosa had to rebuild because it lost a lot of property tax and it had a lot of people uh, that wanted to rebuild mm -hmm. and you had public compassion for these people because they were living in tents or living in motels or whatever mm -hmm. and they needed to rebuild. So the incentive of the city was to get rebuilt the businesses that were lost because a few businesses were burned out and also to replace the homes so that you could get 
the property tax so that you mm. keep the services. And the services were being impacted because you had a lot of people that were putting pressure on the services because they were living out in tents and the rest because uh, they had nowhere else to go. So uh, you get a pattern of public sympathy, the need for revenue, mm-hmm. whatever interest group influence that developers have, mm-hmm. homeowners that are pushing hard uh, that, to rebuild in the place that they were at. And so we end up putting ourselves back in the same situation. And if the fire is hot enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we can do things with vegetation management that lower the risk that your house will catch on fire. But uh, we had expert after expert coming in saying, well, if it blows down hard enough, you're, you're toast, okay? okay? And uh, there's not, you know, the, the, you're not gonna withstand these incredibly intense fires. Um, and if you just make a mistake, you leave the garage door open or your, your particular vents are not covered, sparks get in there and boom, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, we have to decide we don't have control in California over land use. We let people live where they want. In the polling we've done, there's, it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican, there's a sense that people have the right to live where they want. Mm-hmm. But if what they're missing is that if the costs of that are is that everybody's electricity costs are going up or their insurance rates are increasing, mm-hmm. then their right to live in an area that's dangerous is um, imposing costs on the rest of and California. And that's a tough issue, it seems to me, a mm-hmm. uh, tough thing to argue. So uh, I, it's the hardest thing. Politicians don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, attempts to try to get people str- to, to, it's called strategic retreat, to get them to move to other areas. Mm-hmm. They've been successful here and there, but it's expensive and people are reluctant to do it. Mm-hmm. People are frequently underinsured, so they don't really have enough money to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I think what we have to do is say, there, first of all, do no more harm. Mm-hmm. Really sort of say, here are some areas that we just don't allow people to do future development. Mm-hmm. And there's enough public support from what we've, we can tell mm-hmm. uh, from our surveys that you can at least stop the future harm. The hard one that I don't think we're going to be able to deal with anytime soon is letting people rebuild who were there mm-hmm. and, you know, got burned out. I think there's all the things that I mentioned just make it too hard to do anything about that. But at least we could start by saying, mm-hmm. let's not continue. And it's hard because California has a housing crisis. Right. We need to build more homes. And people like to live in areas that are beautiful, right? And um, you know, Marin ran into this when they were trying to get people to do vegetation management. People were saying, yeah, but that takes away the beauty of the home and drops the value of the home. Mm-hmm. And so you had a lot of people that were opposing uh, the kinds of measures of vegetation management that drop um, the risk of your house catching fire. And if you have, uh, like Paradise Valley, uh, if you have a place like that that burns down and then you say, this is too dangerous, you can't live there anymore, then the value of that land goes to zero, basically, for, for housing. Yeah. So who, who, who gives them the, what used to be the fair market value of their home, or, or of their land anyway, not the, the buildings, yeah. so that they can buy something else in California, or, yeah. or do they just lose all the money? So. Yeah, and of course, Paradise Valley in particular had a lot of retirees that were mm-hmm. living in, uh, you know, some of them in mobile homes, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so the reason they moved into that area was that it's too expensive to buy 
I mean, try to buy around here, or mm -hmm. San Francisco or in Santa Clara or San Mateo. It's just prohibitively expensive. Mm -hmm. So people are moving east. Well, when you move east, you're moving, uh, and, and often you're moving into wildland, wildland, wildland areas or moving into the desert where you're going to have, um, you know, uh, greater energy demands because you're going to have to run your air conditioning in the summer. So mm -hmm. the whole question of where we let people uh, another problem is is with the water. You know, if you're moving into areas where there, uh, you know, the groundwater is depleted, that's a real problem also. So, we don't have a comprehensive land use strategy in California, uh, and moreover, it's not clear that people think we should have one. And if we did have one, there, it's not clear that they want the government to be the one to determine it. And if it is the government that's going to determine it, it's not clear that they want the state government to determine it mm -hmm. or the federal government to determine it. They want the locals to determine it. So to me, the whole question of land use is the unexplored area of climate policy that we haven't touched. Mm -hmm. and that plus insurance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so zoning to not let people live in dangerous areas and prohibiting them to move in those areas. And then insurance, the fact is that you know, we're in the middle now of uh, a real insurance crisis for people that are living in those areas. And so what happens if they don't have insurance? Well, then then many of them are not going to be able to rebuild and they're going to have, and the economic vitality of those communities that causes people to rebuild is going to be impacted. So the insurance is the other area that we are only now beginning to realize how difficult it is. Because when you give people insurance, you create something that social scientists call is a moral hazard problem, i.e., mm -hmm. I got insurance, okay, I can rebuild, I'm going to live in a dangerous area. Right. And unfortunately, if enough people think that way, then the total cost of insurance goes up. That's where I was going next, so perfect. <laughs> moral hazard. Now, I have a question for you. Um, can you thread this needle as a political scientist? You talk about China envy. Yeah, yeah. You know, Not really, though. Yeah, yeah I understand. <laughs> So where where along the spectrum of of uh, more simplicity, less uh, as you call it horizontal and vertical fractures in the system, would you would you suggest, or not that you'd suggest, but do you would you predict will happen if these problems keep getting worse, so that something has to be done and somebody has to take control in order to make it get done? So where do you think that that in between those? Uh, positions will well it's interesting happen. because i think in both the water system and in the uh, energy system you see a convergence mm -hmm. so we used to have you know a vertically um, integrated uh, energy systems in other words uh, the, the people that uh, generated and the people that sold it and uh, and the rest were all one company uh, and the transmission system was owned by one company then we broke that all up but what we, so that's been moving in a more decentralized fashion, and it makes sense to do that because, um, you know, if we if we create more local storage and more local um, generation of energy, we don't have to string so many wires and have to, so many utility scare facilities on the other side of the state. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, so the energy system is is devolving to some degree because of. Uh, I think will devolve. And I think on the water system, which was already highly fractured with lots of uh, utilities providing water, 
uh, and lost his horse's water and, and fractured by rights, uh, you know, some people having more access than the rest. I think there you're going to see, um, you know, we saw this with uh, the Groundwater Sustainability Act, and we saw this with the, uh, the, the Integrated Regional Water Plan, that we're beginning to plan at least at a, at a watershed level. So I think you see a convergence um, around something that's intermediate between a whole state and a locality that makes sense, at least in the water, around where the shared watershed is, okay? And I think with energy, it'll similarly, there'll be, the backup energy has to come from out-of-state energy uh, at night and, and maybe big facilities. Um, but we may see, if we get more of an expansion of local and regional solar, that during the day, and if we can combine that with storage, we may find that different regions of the state can be energy self-sufficient and not as reliant on out-of-state or, um, you know, um, you know, far-flung uh, generation facilities. So it could be this filling in of the intermediate level, which creates the continuum from local all the way to state. Hmm. All right. So... Um it's time to have some questions from the audience. If anybody would like to ask uh, Professor Kane uh, any questions, here's one up in front. I see a couple other ones. Okay. Thanks, Billy. Sure, no problem. How are you? Thank you. It sounds like some of these issues with the, the fire and the wind areas are similar to the issues of wetlands, and you have people going back into flooded out places and wetland areas. Yeah and rebuilding. Is this uh, any pressure can we put on the local zoning? Because if you're zoned and you can rebuild, you rebuild in the floodplain. And the next year or the year after, the federal government is bailing you out again because you flooded. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, so, I mean, there are three different, I mean, three different ways that you get people to do things, okay? <laughs> so the first way you get people to do things is to provide information and arguments and rational discussion, or please. <laughs> okay, so let's call that information. And we know that some number of people are actually susceptible to information, typically people in my world and academia and, uh, and people that come to the Commonwealth Club, okay? <laughs> the premise of your being here is uh, that you use your information. But then we have to go to the second level. Um, we saw this with COVID, which is you have to bribe people. Um, and you have to say, okay, well, if you do this, there will be this tax incentive. There will be uh, this loan, uh, low interest loan, or this this gift. <laughs> okay, uh, and we like to think in America that you know the combination of one and two is enough, but it turns out that we can't even bribe some people to do what's good for themselves. We <laughs> discovered that through COVID. Okay. So that means that there is then this third mechanism, which some societies do as their first step, but for us it's always the last step, and that's to compel people to do things through regulation. And I think eventually we're just going to have to get tougher on our regulations. Uh, and the best argument that unites people across ideology is if the combined cost of doing nothing <laughs> increases, then you'll get people to do something. So, uh, unfortunately, it does come down to what happens to insurance costs, what happens to uh, the social cost of rebuilding in given areas. Um, 
not everywhere. Again, there are going to be areas where number one or number two work, right? And there, uh, you know, nonprofits can go in and buy areas and make them wilderness areas, protected areas. Um, and, uh, and there are communities that are sufficiently well-educated about conservation that they're going to see the value of wetlands. And by the way, wetlands can uh, provide natural barriers against flooding, et cetera. So there can be a utilitarian argument for it. But in the end, there, if we're going to really get to where we want, both on mitigation and adaptation, we're going to have to bite the bullet and, and compel. But again, it's going to take a lot of kicks in the shin <laughs> before we can start to compel people politically. You made, uh, had an example in your book about how Texas surprisingly went for solar and, 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 and wind farms when, when politically it didn't seem no. worthwhile, but it was financially yeah. And a financial incentive. Yeah. No, and, and I actually made this point uh, at the Hewlett Foundation, and the director of the Hewlett Foundation jumped all over me and didn't want to believe that the world was so materialistically driven. But mm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I suppose if you're in a wealthy nonprofit, you don't have to worry about that. But I, but I, I do think that um, in the end, um, if the degree, if you look at the the... The look at the progress we made on efficiency, electricity efficient, you know, efficient appliances, et cetera, it's because it could save money. Now, ironically, of course, people then bought more refrigerators and more stoves, mm -hmm. so we probably have to. There is an element of that Steve Chu talks about quite frequently of getting people to realize that there has to be some sacrifice in this, that, it, that you have to conserve to some degree. You can't just take every efficiency and then use it as an excuse to, uh, you know, find other appliances to, to plug in, okay? Um, you know, so I, I, I think that this, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's in all of the above that we're going to need to move forward on this. And, uh, I, I, and politically as somebody who worries about backlash mm -hmm. that if you move too quickly in a direction that doesn't come you know conform to public opinion then you get backlash then you get a change of government and then you get a reversal of policy and so the problem for the center of both parties is how do you prevent the backlash by making the policies moderate but then you've got the hardcore passionate people on the left and the right that say, no, no, it's all or nothing, all or nothing. Okay. And that's the dynamic that we're stuck in right now. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I just want to put a plug in before I ask a question about that course. It's a wonderful course on, on the West that Stanford offers. I really enjoyed it last year. Um, I guess I wanted to raise two points. One political and one economic. I think one of the political problems in California and other parts of the U.S. is decentralization. And the Bay Area is a great example that you raised because there's no central decision-making. I mean, ABAG's been around since I was a grad student at Stanford, and yep. the Bay Area governments, what do they do? I mean, Information, the, information, and to some degree money, but no but, compulsion. But protecting the Bay should be yeah. one example where... You know, you would see a common need to have coordinated planning, even if you have phased, you know, implementation. But anyway, so it's a great example. So I, I think we see it elsewhere. And the other is economic in terms of risk, because 
we see the insurance industry not just refusing to insure places that have burned down, but refusing to insure where there is risk, but people have tried to mitigate, like around Tahoe, where there's been a lot of effort to mm -hmm. um, clean up, keep to to be as conscientious as possible with new regulations about protecting buildings. Still, insurers are very reluctant to insure. I was at had a place where they refused to insure the whole area, the whole condo association. Um, but also the the perception of risk in California now where we have fewer insurance providers, they're, they're pulling out, and those will be costs that we will see as as people will see in January, the costs on their PG&E bills yep. because there was no incentive before for PG&E to put those cables underground because they weren't bearing the cost if anything happened um, until they were sued. And now I think it's going to be interesting to watch what kind of backlash there is um, when those bills start to come out. Yeah. Well, I share, I share those concerns, so I, I'm not going to relieve your anxiety about it. <laughs> uh, I think the insurance issues are going to be huge in this state. And I think that's going to raise a lot of questions about um, what are known as IOUs, investor-owned utilities, um, like PG&E, mm -hmm. because they're guaranteed a profit, okay? They're guaranteed a profit, which, again, the moral hazard problem that if you're guaranteed a profit and you know that we're going to just put the costs on all the ratepayers if uh, if your wires are falling down, then you're not necessarily going to build the sensors that you could. You're not necessarily going to have the sophisticated power shutoff systems that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, by the way, this you know the, the return on investment is very high for the utility company. So the more they can build things, the better. But that doesn't necessarily mean what we should be doing, right? So. I think, and then in the water world, same problem. If you go, uh, Carol McKibben is here somewhere, and you know, <laughs> don't get her on the subject of the local <laughs> utility, okay? Because they're, they've been debating and down in Monterey for quite, for quite some time now. You know, should, our, I, should a private company be the agent of the public purpose or not? Yeah, there are too many, there there. If you think of where we've run into trouble in America, you know, you think of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you know, you think of the, where we try to sort of take private companies and public purposes and somehow meld them. Sometimes it works when you contract out, but sometimes if, a, if, if an agency doesn't understand its mission, is it to make money or is it to serve the public purpose? And the, the idea in America that it always means that you can do both at the same time it isn't necessarily true. And uh, what we're trying to do, it's one thing if you're not trying to change market preferences, okay? But what we're trying to do in decarbonization is we're trying to change people's preferences away from what has been, you know, let's be honest that the whole fossil fuel transformation brought higher standards of living and dropped costs. Um, and now you're trying to undo this. Uh, and of course, the the trivial example that I use, um, and I won't embarrass my wife with this, uh, is uh, is gas stoves. You know, uh, mm -hmm. whether you get rid of gas stoves, um, you know, it's going to be hard. And the question is, does a private company have the will and the? Because right now the POUs are not experiencing the same 
level of increase. We're trying to keep track of this and I'll hopefully get a policy brief out on this, but the, peer, the publicly owned utilities mm-hmm. are doing a lot better on holding down the cost. Now, part of that is just the accident that they tend to have a concentrated area and to be fair to PG&E, which is hard to do, but I will, um, <laughs> PG&E is mandated by the state to build electricity where the new construction is. So if we don't solve the problem of people building out into the wildland areas, PG&E has no, no, um, you know, uh, no choice. It has to continue to string out wires in that area. So we have to sort of go back and look at these practices and realize that they're interrelated and ask the question of whether, given what we're trying to do is really change people's preferences whether this is something that market incentives by itself can do or, you know, private companies can do. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing to explain to my colleagues. And I, I'm over in the engineering quad and they, they see, and it's wonderful. I, I get optimism from, you know, the solutions that they come up with. But uh, in terms of both the policies and the institutions, they don't spend much time thinking about that or why it, why those things may have to change in a given way. But the more you realize why things don't get done, the more you realize that you have to change some of the institutional processes and, uh, needless to say, the policies as well. And incentives, yeah. Whenever you talk about this, I always think of private prisons, you know, that then, uh, you know, do some things more efficiently and everything, but then you find out that they're paying, because they don't have enough people in the prison, they give incentives to put people in prison so that they have people to work for them, you know. Yeah. It's, you, you definitely don't want to run a prison system with that incentive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this is, um, there's one thing that you left out of your very uh, apt uh, description, which is that uh, this whole opposition to building around uh, transportation hubs. Think of, I think it's the, the representative in San Francisco that's put, pushing hard to put you know, uh, denser housing around the Caltrain lines or the mm. BART lines, et cetera, right? Uh, and, uh, and then you run into nimbyism. That is, people don't want to do that because they're afraid that it will um, destroy the property value of their communities. Um, so one answer, I mean, Oakland's been doing this with trying to, you know, in-law, you know, building more in-law, whatever they call them, uh, mm. annexes to homes, um, but the reality is that we got to get real about the fact that if we have these areas that we believe are environmentally sensitive and we're not going to build into the national forests and the parks, if we believe that there are some areas that are incredibly dangerous in terms of wildfires uh, and we, you know, uh, we, we, we need to keep people out of those areas for the sake, their sake and for our sake in terms of the expense, then we have to reinforce what is already a feature of the American West. We are, uh, David Kennedy is fond of saying in his lectures, that we are one of the most uh, urbanized states uh, out in the West because we have dense concentrations of, of cities and suburbs uh, surrounded by a lot of federal and state land. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, that, you know, that, because we have a greater appreciation of the outdoors, uh, people want to go live with these beautiful surroundings that are around them. Um, but that instinct, maybe we have to put some halt on. So the answer is more density 
in uh, urban areas, more around uh, lines of transportation, more attention to where the water um, capacity, the uh, and the extreme weather dangers, uh, you know, are low. The water capacity is adequate. I think, in other words, we have to have a, a kind of guidelines about where we do the expansion. Uh, but I think density is definitely going to be an element of that. I mean. It's funny, California's gone through a lot of different phases. There was a phase when we were really pushing growth um, for its own sake uh, during the Pat Brown era. Then we went through a period where we, at least in areas like the Bay Area in the 80s and 90s when I first came up here, uh, there was a, a real belief that no, we had to have growth control and we couldn't let growth expand beyond the infrastructure needs. So we have in other times uh, decided not to let growth be uncontrolled. Uh, but then that just pushed the growth out into uh, further in, into the Wui areas and back into the eastern part of the state, the eastern part of the state once again. And then people commute in on the highways, which of course uh, causes more pollution. And well, yeah, well, if we electrify the cars, maybe that'll uh, help to some degree. But, but the bottom line is that we don't have a real land use vision <laughs> that's sustainable. And yeah. we have this belief that this should be a matter of individual choice, not collective decision making. And that we're going to have to give up on that to some degree. I was at a conference uh, when I first moved out here from New York in, in, in maybe 2000, 2001. Um, and the Sierra Club speaker was talking about how uh, density in urban areas is really good for the environment. And you have more people walking, you know, fewer cars. And he gave all the reasons for it. And uh, afterwards, I went up to him and I asked him, I said, you know, that sounds like New York City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, he paused for a second and says, that's true, but we don't mention that. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, San Francisco's had a history of, <laughs> of, uh, of distinctive neighborhoods, so, yeah. and Oakland, too. So th it, it, there is a tradition for that that we could build on, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it is. It's not a poster child. No, no, uh, yes. <laughs> Exactly. New York City. <laughs> so thank you very much, uh, sure. Professor Kane, for uh, bringing this to us. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 121st year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for joining us here. Thanks. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.